Hello everybody, and welcome to the Asher Essays. My name is Alex Ash, or Asher, by some tokens, and I will be your host. Today, the essay, the audio essay I'm going to be speaking at you, is called Even Monsters Maybe. It is a tongue-in-cheek phrase, a joke phrase, about the fact that possibly people we call monsters, and monsters in folklore and in literature and in movies, in the horror genre especially, but also out of the ordinary people who do heinous things, we also call monsters. Um, they all had to have been born from a mother and father. Or do they? It's become very popular these days to try to get into the mind of a so-called monster. And the true crime genre has really taken off in popularity. However, one must note and differentiate between trying to understand and even having empathy for someone who, whose life was tragic and maybe that's why they ended up antisocial and sort of feeling different from everybody around them and started acting in a way that we can't have people acting if they want to be part of society. That's different. Understanding a motivation is different than condoning the actions of somebody. Let's just get that out of the way and make sure we understand that. That just because I know the motive behind a heinous act and I say, oh, I can see how that person reacted a little more intensely than a normal person to a situation that otherwise might aggravate everybody, every normal person on the planet, for instance, walking in on somebody cheating on you. That would make everybody fume. But certain people end up becoming monstrous and do bad things. And we can understand the motivation behind the bad thing that they did without saying, I would do the same thing or without saying, good job. Now in this episode, episode number one of the Asher Essays, I would like to discuss three different archetypes in culture, three different tropes, three different things that have become popularized um, that all speak to this idea of monsters being outcasts and I'll speak to our different fears around what we call monsters. These three stories, two are from folklore, the Pied Piper and trolls in general. I want to talk about trolls, the Pied Piper, and then the classic romantic story. It was written in the romanticism or romantic period where everybody's emotions were really intense and they talked about them a lot.
in literature. I learned this in AP English in high school. Um, the classic romanticism work, horror work, Frankenstein. So the Pied Piper, Trolls, and Frankenstein all have something to do with our conception of what monsters are in and out of fiction and in and out of real life. So first, I'm going to go through each story or archetype and talk about how they sort of fit the definition of a monster, what fears of ours each of these archetypes or stories um, actually accentuate what the themes are in Frankenstein and the Pied Piper story. Trolls are a thing in many different works, including the Lord of the Rings. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Now let's start with the Pied Piper of Hamelin is the original story. And there is a place in this world named Hamelin. And there was a cathedral whose stained glass windows actually depicted the Pied Piper. So the basic story is that there was a village infested with rats. Most likely this happened during plague times. This story started being a popular story during the Black Plague in Europe when getting rid of rats was really important because they are the ones that spread that disease. We know a lot about um, pandemics again these days, sadly. Um, it didn't wipe out nearly as much of our population this time, thank goodness. But anyway, there are a lot of, there is a lot of reality. There are a lot of things that are pulled from reality in these stories. So we have a village overrun with rats. We have the Pied Piper whose music enchants the rats. And this is a real thing too. If we've seen snake charmers in India, by now you can probably find that on YouTube. The hypnosis of animals supposedly or the appearance of hypnotizing an animal that you've trained secretly um, is a practice in real life anyway so there's this guy though with a magic flute that can will away the rats with his playing and he does so for the village of Hamlin and they don't pay him. So out of revenge, he uses his same magical powers to kidnap in the grim fairy tale version to kidnap all but two kids who are blind and deaf respectively. So they can't follow the other children. Um, and so this makes for a way for the, parents to find out that the kids were taken etc etc but anyway the kids end up getting taken and that's pretty much the end of the story and according to wikipedia 
there has been a novel published. If you click on adaptations in the Pied Piper of Hamlin Wikipedia page, then you will find... It's called Come Follow Me, a 1983 book published by Avon Books and written by Philip Michaels, a paperback horror novel, Come Follow Me. Now, most people wouldn't think of the Pied Piper as a monster, necessarily, but he has become the topic of at least one horror work. And the metaphor for appreciating your children and appreciating the help you get still stands strong. Actually, another work The Sweet Hereafter, 1997's The Sweet Hereafter, uses the myth of the Pied Piper as a metaphor for a town's failure to protect its children. Also, in one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, they use this, what is also called a trope, archetype, theme, a repeated thing a repeated image, a repeated story throughout culture. Nowadays, sometimes in some cases called a meme and called that in linguistics. Meme is a linguistics term actually used by academics first before it was used by trolls, internet trolls, which we will talk about in relation to the fantastical creatures, the trolls. But still, first, a little more on the Pied Piper. So what kind of monster, if we think not so hard, in society does the Pied Piper represent? And we can look at the story from his perspective or from the perspective of the families that lost their children. Um, from his perspective, the fear here represented in the story is of being sort of screwed over by society and not being appreciated for your unique talents um, and having a talent that, okay, what else can you do? Like that's very specific to a certain problem and outside of that, you don't really fit in. But it's easier to see from the side of the parents who lost their children what fear this plays to or plays on. And it's the fear of offenders of a certain kind. I don't even like to say the phrase. Um, but kidnappers too, and predators, let's just say, let's call them predators. Our fear of the antisocial predator who seems to get along with children better than we do sometimes. Um, our conception of the predator 
seems to be that they are a little stunted in their development and they care more about interacting with children than they do about getting along with adults. And in all cases, all three cases we'll see, in the case of the Pied Piper, the creatures, trolls, and maybe even internet trolls, predators, Frankenstein, mad scientists, or our fears about mad scientists, our fears about some rageful monster, we see that these all have to do with a character that's isolated or cut off from being simpatico with other human beings and has to do with our fear of a vengeful force. The troll, in the troll's case, it's bullies and the bridge troll classically taking advantage of a situation and pushing around the weaker who otherwise would just cross that bridge right away. Anywho, you catch my drift that these three stories all have to do with being powerless over a monster. And although we don't typically think of the Pied Piper as a monster, in the Nightmare on Elm Street take on it, we can more easily see that the predator angle is a big theme in this story. What is the lesson to be learned from the story? Um, I think it has a lot to do with appreciate the children and appreciate people for the help that they give you. Um, appreciate what you have and be nice to everybody because you never know who's going to turn into a monster. Speaking of which, let's talk now about Frankenstein. Or Frankenstein's monster. People love to point out the fact that the monster, or the fiend, as it is called in some places in the book, is separate from Frankenstein himself. But most people know that. It's just easier to say Frankenstein when you mean the monster. But I will say the monster and the doctor to differentiate. So where's the theme of isolation? Which is something that we all accept now as a forensic scientific fact. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But in pop culture, it's very common to assume or portray a monster or a serial killer, let's say, character as being an outcast, being antisocial, not having too many friends, keeping to themselves, etc., etc. So what sets off Frankenstein? Well, that he's hideous, essentially. He's outcast for that reason. And to remind you of the story, what happens is he runs away, and he ends up 
wanting a partner, he ends up being alone and lonely and realizing that he's ugly, but that he wants a counterpart, a female counterpart. He tries to force the doctor to make a counterpart. That doesn't happen because the doctor thinks that it'll just create two evil monsters that will procreate. So the monster goes nuts and actually becomes a killer and kills at least two people in the doctor's life. Um, the story is a little different than the Pipe Piper because it also involves obsession and is a little like Moby Dick because there's a search for the creature in the beginning and the end. And I believe they just leave it as a loose end that the fiend or the monster is out there somewhere in the Arctic, just alone and dying. But this archetype is also like the Hulk, where it's a superhuman power, just like the Pied Piper's piping abilities. He's more human than human. He's beyond human, this monster. And that's another fear that is accentuated in this horror story called Frankenstein, originally. From the perspective of the monster, it's also our fear, once again, of being different enough from society that everybody is afraid of us being an outcast, being ostracized. From the doctor's perspective, it's also a fear, like I said, of becoming obsessed with something. First, the doctor's obsessed with creating, bringing someone back to life, creating an undead fiend. And then he's obsessed with finding the monster to prevent it from killing anybody else. But in the end, he's too late. Being, he already loses his wife the night after the wedding and loses, I believe, his assistant. Um, and now the fiend or monster is in the Arctic where it's not going to hurt anybody um, as long as it's left to its own devices. This ending also reminds me not only of Moby Dick and the search for a whale, but the ending of Crime and Punishment, where Raskolnikov is sent to Siberia after confessing to a murder, after confessing to being a monster, committing a monstrous act. In pop culture, we call serial killers and predators monsters, generally it seems. And this is a theme carried out in literature and folklore. So the lesson to be learned from Frankenstein is to be aware of your obsession with anything um, and the fear that it plays on is again that of an antisocial and uncontrollable power. Um, it also touches on the zombie archetype, which 
I think goes back to the infestation fear that the Pied Piper also talks about. The Pied Piper starts with an infestation. The story starts with a rat infestation. And that is a normal fear that humans throughout time have had. And now with the pandemic, with a pandemic in modern times, we see that this is a natural fear that is not going away anytime soon. And the zombie archetype also has a lot to do with an infestation and disease spreading, as well as the fear of an uncontrollable supernatural force that can't be stopped. A monster that can't be killed in many cases. And that's the thing with monsters in society, too, that we are fascinated by them, but we're also very afraid of them because they represent something that we don't fully understand. I talked about understanding motives, but we don't ever fully understand how they were made. You can't blame their parents. A lot of times parents are shocked at their own offspring's behavior and are extremely saddened and embarrassed, to put it lightly, by the monstrous acts of their children. We don't really hear about the parents of Jeffrey Dahmer and the likes, but um, sometimes in the news, someone young enough ends up killing people and one of the first questions that pops into most people's minds, I think, is I'm so glad that's not my kid and that's not a question. And I wonder how the parents of this person feel. I wonder how the upbringing for this person was. That's more of a question. Also, going back to the zombie archetype, there's another example of if you go from the perspective of the monster, this also talks to our fears of being the one that's misunderstood, being the one that's ostracized, that doesn't understand, that can't interact. We all have fears of social interaction that have to do with interacting with other people a little bit. We all get nervous sometimes in social situations, some of them or we find them tedious, or we have some sort of negative emotion tied at some point in our life. I'm sure every human being has had a negative emotion tied to social interaction. So the larger fear also is of straying from the flock and becoming something that is bitter towards the rest of humanity. It's a real fear, too. We all also watch out for that, for being too much of an outcast, for being too much of a rebel. A lot of us find our own ecosystems where rebels fit in together, but it's the same sort of social organization 
where there are norms to be followed. And if you can't follow those ones, even if they're countercultural, then you don't belong anywhere. And that is a genuine fear that some people can have, I'm sure. Alright folks, so lastly let's talk about trolls. Speaking of antisocial behavior, um, I think trolls also represent bullies and that's how they're tied to modern-day trolling on the internet. I think the logic behind modern-day trolls is that if a celebrity or anybody popular on social media is going to be posting things publicly, then I have a right to humiliate them or insult them if it's something worth insulting or humiliating the person over. Just like a bridge troll that sees a bridge. Imagine back in the day, imagine if trolls were based in reality off of people who took advantage of situations that otherwise would not be taken advantage of. And the logic here is, well, don't be stupid enough to run across my bridge. This is public property and I'm bigger than you, so find another bridge or answer my riddles or fight me or pay me, etc., etc. But that actually is a departure from what trolls were originally, which were humanoid, giant, sometimes ugly creatures that lived in isolation that in some cases, according to Wikipedia, in the old Germanic and Norse myths, myths would turn to stone if they were touched by sunlight. Trolls may be ugly and slow-witted or look and behave exactly like human beings with no particularly grotesque characteristics about them is what the Wikipedia article says. They live far from human habitation and in many cases are not Christianized. So there again is the theme of being an outcast. And this is a type of monster in very old, old myths. For the internet term, see internet troll for the doll, see Troll Doll. So, the Trolls movie has nothing to do with them as monsters. They're very cute in the Trolls movies and as Troll Dolls. Um, but as you can see, they've become a pretty big part of culture everywhere. Not just in Norse mythology. So again, what do these three have in common? Frankenstein, the Pied Piper, folklore about trolls, and actually four, I mentioned zombies, and pretty much any horror creature represents what? Our fear of monsters in real life, our fear of the killer, our fear of the predator, our fear of the nasty bully, our fear, basically, all three of these 
are outcasts and they're unknown. Their motives are cloudy. We don't know in the end what makes them in some ways subhuman, in other ways superhuman. They're superhuman in their way that they don't empathize with people normally. They don't relate to people normally. They're subhuman because they're despicable in the actions that they enact against people. And we see that we like to write about them and we like to talk about them. We're fascinated by them. Probably, and this is the major conclusion of this essay, probably because it takes a little bit of the power away from them the more we talk about them and the more we try to understand. It doesn't change them. It doesn't change these people. And it doesn't really prevent tragedy from striking our lives. But... It does do something to remove the mystery surrounding people like this who would bring tragedy into our lives. And reducing that uncertainty helps us be happier and more functional people. And helps us make meaning of tragedy, maybe not in our lives, but the tragedy we see every day on the news. Thanks for listening. Oh, and a quick shout out to the person who inspired the title of this essay, this audio essay. Um, sorry if it's a little scattered. This is an amateur production. Um, I hope you enjoyed it, but um, the title was inspired or taken from the title of the same song, same named song. See, now I just made myself really nervous saying I'm an amateur. Um, it's called Even Monsters Maybe. Check it out on YouTube. Um, my pal made that song, so go for it, please. Let's say the episode was brought to you by that musician there. Thanks again, and see you next time. Hear you next time. You will hear me next time. <laughs> Bye.